Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is Alan Averill, and this is Agitators Anonymous, and it is episode 13, I think. Um, a little bit late, a few hours late. Yesterday, I was singing for the first time in six months, so my voice, maybe you can hear, maybe you can't, is a little bit rough, to say the least. least. So normally, I would have recorded it last night. I tend to record these in the dead of night, but... Um, I think you might have thought it was somebody pretending to be me. Eh, maybe it is. It was nice to have a little bit of normalcy back in life. A little bit of structure once again. And not playing music, as I've alluded to many times on the podcast. Not rehearsing, not playing live, all these kind of things. I have said it that it's not something that I took for granted, but certainly... Rehearsing could sometimes be seen as a chore, taking public transport out, going across the city, playing songs that you do know, that you have sung for years. But this strange situation that we're in, this strange gap, has shone a new light onto rehearsing. And I can tell you it was with yeah, some amount of positivity and joy that we returned to it. And it looks like there will be a new Primordial album next year. I don't think it's um, odd of me to announce that or to say that right now. But anyway, a little bit of normalcy returns now. Quite where that leaves us with the rest of the world, I don't know. But anyway, so my 
dive into Irish history in the last episode has gone down predominantly positively. Now, of course, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a historian, so there was a few things I neglected to mention, such as a couple of thousand years (laughs) from the Neolithic period up to the Vikings. Um, But that wasn't my intention. My intention was to try and explain, as I said, why the North was the North. I'll continue with the second part of it and take up from about 1620 onwards. But I thought two episodes in a row front loaded with loads of Irish history might be a bit much. So so what are we going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? What I've been thinking about is to maybe take a look at several characters throughout history and take a little something of a deep dive or, well, my scattergun all over the place approach to their life, their history, characters that have influenced music, influenced metal, influenced our scene, influenced our aesthetic that maybe we haven't really understood or maybe that we've taken for granted or not even known perhaps how great an influence they've had over who we are. So looking around, some of you, like I said before on another podcast, have asked me who is that in the intro? It sounds like Winston Churchill. And yes, it does sound like Winston Churchill, but it's Alastair Crowley, um, whose influence stretches, casts a long shadow over heavy metal, over music in general. Um, So I'm going to take a look at his life in this podcast. I'm going to take a look at who he was in as much as I can understand it, because an awful lot of it is smoke and mirrors. It's very confusing trying to follow his meanderings and wanderings from one continent to the other that he just seems to pop up in. Even his image, his photos, his his character seems to change from a bearded mountaineer to a bedecked, bejeweled, pharaoh-esque character with a gold-sweeping headdress in little more than a couple of years. And even looking at their image, you find it difficult to concede that it's the same person. Or Alistair at 60, Alistair at 70. Even the eyes maybe are the only thing that can connect the face, but he seems to have been a master of disguise. And it's that theme that often runs through trying to understand his history. So I'm gonna try and take a look at his life, an often misunderstood and deliberately obtuse, confusing and divisive man. Um, I think since the first notes of Black Sabbath rang out in 1969 to crush the hippie dream underfoot, and what a sweet crushing that was. We know Geezer was into it, there's no doubt about that. But the the first and most obvious proponent was, of course, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin, who even went so far as to buy some fine Crowley real estate, but we'll get into that. Zoffo, indeed. He's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper, by the Beatles. Bowie dressed up as him. Bloodshuckers sex magic. Mr. Crowley, Ozzy. To Iron Maiden, Moonchild. To Fields of the Nephilim. To Behemoth. To Secrets of the Moon. To all points in between. Even Primordial has a song called God's Old Snake about Crowley. Which I might look at the lyrics and try and determine what the hell I was talking about there. Hell being the operative word and even superficially his sigils sigils and symbols 
have been adopted by hundreds of bands the world over. Um, the self-professed wickedest man in the world who influenced Scientology and was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini. So what I'm going to do is going to try and take a look at his life, who he was, some of the magical principles, and also discuss maybe my own adolescence, my own infatuation with things like that. So let's put some personal perspective on it before I try and look at who Curly was. Um, so as not to make this just a simple biography. I mean, every, anyone can read that on Wikipedia. So let's try and find the personal in the particular. Um, I, it's, I was one of those kids who took, took the lyrics of Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath too seriously. Well, for me, they weren't too seriously, but for others, they were. Um, or maybe other people didn't take them seriously enough. For most people, I suppose heavy metal at this adolescent stage was a fantasy world. It was a world of escapism. But even for me, and I say this with a certain amount of romantic nostalgia, I knew that the moment Prowler Barn Maiden, the needle hit the record, the very first time I heard it, I knew, ah, that's it, I'm done. But I grew up in a household um, with hundreds of books, mainly science fiction, but hidden within some of the science fiction was the odd novel that had some occult references in it or something like this. Match that with the number of the beast, match that with Mr. Crowley, match that with my burgeoning and adolescent infatuation with Venom and Slayer and all this kind of stuff. And it doesn't take long to tumble into that world of being obsessed by occult symbolism. Um, so, you know, it's without any uh, fear or trepidation, I would say that, yes, I was a I was a teenage Satanist. And so let's try and examine. Let's try and row back through the years to my grey matter and try and examine what that meant. I mean, it was clear, of course, that when you were a kid, there were certain people who got into certain scenes, certain kind of music who, you know, it was aesthetic, it was the aesthetic, it was the clothes, it was the fashion. And in six months later, there was something else. And I'm quite, I knew back then that this was the path that I was going to hack out for myself. And the path, as I said, from Sabbath to Maiden to black metal was a short one. And I mean, of course, you had to clear the path yourself back in Ireland in 1987 or 1988 hack out the undergrowth. Um, and being a metal fan back then, I was a nerdy, bookish kid. Absolutely. I was not a outdoor camping, fallen off trees kid. I played a lot of sport, but I was definitely a nerdy, bookish kid. And very sh quickly, Robert Heinlein and Robert Silverberg and that kind of science fiction gave way to Lovecraft and Poe. And before you knew that, you became obsessed with the Necronomicon. And then you fell into fell into the chasm of actually trying to find real magical books, of actually really trying to take an interest in the occult a little bit more seriously. Of course, it's teenage ideal, idealism also spun into the web because at that age, at 15, it's a very interesting and strange age because obviously you're not yet 
a man, you're not yet a grown up, but you have enough understanding of how the world works, but yet still an element of childlike wonder about the world, you know? I said, you know, already. So it was my mission to more or less read every book in the house back in my teenage years. And that married with the insular, fantastical world of heavy metal led me out into, I suppose, somewhere a bit darker and a bit more negative by other people's judgment. But I certainly didn't view it like that at all. So I'm going to try and explain what that meant. I mean, at some stage, I even tried some Crowleyan magic back then, to at least reciting some words from the Book of the Law, writing them on some kind of paper and no doubt with blood, I imagine, and burying them for some reason with bones and trying to project. Looking back, looking back, I have no particular regret on any of that. In fact, I, like I said, I view it positively. And many people obviously strayed from that path, but mine led me straight into black metal and my obsession with the occult was just hand in hand with those two things from tiny acorns, as they say. But we can set this to the backdrop of the 1980s, which was a thing called the Satanic Panic, which was sort of like a movement that was spreading across the states where a section of the media became obsessed with satanic cults. The PMRC was busy trying to ban metal, the Parents Music Resource Center. Um, Tipper Gore, of whom was the leader, Al Gore's wife. And there was a, a very strange movement throughout U.S. society in the early 80s where people were admitting to the most heinous and crazy crimes and there were police chiefs coming out in the press saying that literally thousands of children were murdered and sacrificed to Satan every year or more. And it was like, I think it was a post... In the late 1970s, as you've probably noticed on Netflix, there are many, many documentaries um, devoted to serial killers now. And this era, this like 1970s era, late 1970s seems to be the golden age of serial killing. Um, where people could roam from state to state undetected. And it seems to have affected society in the sense that by... You'll also notice there's lots of occult movies in the 1970s, whether it's um, The Omen and that kind of stuff. But by, by the early 1980s, there seems to have been something of a moral panic, which I guess we can see today in society in relation to... Um, cancel culture and all that kind of stuff is a form of moral panic in a way. But this was in the early 1980s where the media in all these small towns across the USA was producing all these people under hypnosis who were saying they were members of satanic cults. And the dots were connected to early heavy metal. And so the attraction for a teenager at the time was vast because metal really was this outlier this it was huge no doubt it sold millions of records but it was this outlier it was a dangerous thing i suppose it represented a kind of danger that maybe only now hip-hop does or something like this but in the 1980s it was heavy metal it was slayer and so diving into that whole world it wasn't very difficult to be firstly inspired by adopting this rebel outsider status of which heavy metal represented, but then also 
to begin to try and dig up the dirt and uncover people like Alistair Crowley. So somewhere in Tower Records in about 1990, I held in my hand a copy of the Book of the Law, which I have right in front of me. But someone in Tower Records, and yes, it was a Tower Records, back then read the minds of a whole generation of teenagers in the city who were dying to read Diary of a Drug Fiend or dying to read Anton LaVey or whatever else. And I still have a whole raft of occult books that I bought in 1990, 1992, 1993 in Tower Records. Um, as it very much was part of pop counterculture, file under pop culture, I guess. And so my bookshelf had one after another after another Crowleyan book. We, of course, used to steal some of them, but that's another story. Welcome to Dublin. So what I'm trying to say, what am I trying to say as we ramble? We took the, t we took the jump from just absorbing the music and the imagery to actually having texts, having texts to read and other names to discover, whether it was Osmond Spare or McGregor Mathers. Even our own Yates was involved in the Golden Dawn, Crowley's occult sect. And no, not that Golden Dawn of which people have inquired after, after because I happened to write a song about the Golden Dawn. Yes, the magical Golden Dawn. Um, Crowley's occult sect and a whole new of a whole new avenue of occult pursuit opened up. I became obsessed with the Victorian 19th century relationship to the occult. And at 16, like I said, I decided I was a Satanist and a teenage Satanist. Now there's a sentence. So what would my teenage self have answered? What would my 20-year-old self have answered if 25 years later I was going to make a podcast and divulge this information? For one, he wouldn't have been happy because a certain element of, I suppose, personal secrecy was part of the adoption of these tropes. Needless to say, for me, looking back, it was a positive thing, and I still have a very healthy sympathy for the devil. But let's entertain. What does that mean? It's absolutely nothing I regret whatsoever. But if I put myself back into my mindset of, let's say, a 20-year-old me, I would have said that Satan was a metaphor. Of course, not corporeal, not an actual thing. A focus, the adversary, the rebel in man, the creative spark. He had pan's hooves, Loki's horns, Poseidon's trident, i.e. the composite of all of the old gods, flawed and human, not omnipotent and not unreachable, as God or the biblical God represented, at least to us at the time, or to me, that's what it meant. And the thing that I carry on from that period in my life is the will to question, reevaluate, and for what it's worth, go against the grain. At least for me, I consider my early teenage infatuation with the occult to be a very positive stepping stone. Anyway, what are we talking about? So that was almost like an interview segment. I would have answered back in 1994. So, the Great Beast 666. Smoke and mirrors, my friends. Let's have a look at the life of Alistair Crowley. Bury me in a nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. 
I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. Mr. Crowley, what went on in your head? Sorry, Alistair, had to do it. So he was born Edward Alexander Crowley in the year 1875 in Warwickshire in England to extremely religious parents. His father was a preacher, which might explain a hell of a lot about the guy. Again, hell being the operative word. And they were members of a strict religious sect called the Plymouth Brethren. And the image is of... The image I get is one of a very frugal, devout, rather harsh upbringing, very, very joyless. And it's interesting to note how many famous or infamous men have issues in childhood from serial killers to dictators. They have powerful mothers in their lives. And Crowley was no different. As he became a teenager, he began to rebel against their influence. He went to live with his uncle um, at about 14 or 15 and was shown a very different life. Previously, it had been all no fun, no core, no mosh, no trends. But now it all went a bit party thrash as our young Crowley rebelled, so the story goes, had sex with the maid on his mother's bed in revenge at her Puritanism. Um, and this, th that as an aside is a very curious story because that woman then became one of Jack the Ripper's victims in mythology. Crowley, of course, claimed that Jack was a fellow occultist. And in hindsight, that tells a lot about the form of the man, that he, in a very often advantageous and sort of very spur of the moment, but often very dark way, tries to claim ill fortune as his own providence, as his own agency. And I think it says a lot that somehow he ties in his own occultism with Jack the River when there seems to be no evidence for it at all. He goes to Cambridge University. Okay, now you've heard of that, right? This is 1898. And to set the scene, I think you have to consider that Victorian society was quite a strange place. I mean, it looks back, it seems strange looking back now that they were obsessed and enamored with occultism and mediumistic evenings and seances and spirituality. I mean, I think even let's say from Madame Blavatsky to Rasputin, even over in Russia, you can see something in the public that they engage in these high society orders, an element of absolute and utter fascination with the spiritually arcane. And that is something the Victorians really embraced. So our boy goes to Cambridge. And it's here his burgeoning bisexuality, his burgeoning willingness to experiment comes to the fore as he falls in love with a young man who goes by the name of Diane de Rougie, I think, or rather that's his cross-dressing alter ego. And Crowley fully embraces this dandyism, this experimental side. And he very soon after this inherits his family's fortune, his parents die, and he begins to spend it on whores more or less every day, adopts this caddish, debauched, Byron-esque lifestyle. And um, I think that that's a good reference point, is Byron. If you ever are interested to go and read the tales of Child Harold, 
you would very get a very good and interesting glimpse into I suppose what we could consider one of the first ever superstars was Lord Byron his tales scandalized society um, and in a very similar way Crowley would come to do the same the Golden Dawn, by the way, was a magical hermetical order that was formed in 1889, like a sort of occult high society connected to the collegiate circle of the time in the United Kingdom, connected to Cambridge, if I am not incorrect. And remember, so the Golden Dawn, its members included people like Arthur Conan Doyle, William Falcon, Bram Stoker, and even, as an Irishman, our own William Butler Yeats. So it had tentacles within tentacles. Is that the right word? It had a structure within high society of the time that it had inherited from the Freemasons, I suppose. Um, and the Freemasons, in turn, inherited it from it, it's 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 how can I say? I'll put it this way. A couple of years ago, I went to the open day, like the open house in the Masonic Hall in Dublin. And I've always been quite obsessed with ancient and secret societies. I mean, the last Primordial album has a lot of stuff about the post-Enlightenment societies, such as the Rosicrucians within the lyrics. And the Illuminati themselves were an actual group. It's not just a name people throw around now to explain I suppose they do throw it around now to explain something they don't really understand. But between the 15th and um, 18th century, there were many, many secret occult orders around Europe. I suppose the inheritance of the Knights Templar and all that kind of thing. If you go to the Masonic Hall in Dublin, you, what will strike you is the insanity of the Egyptian room. It's insane. And it's quite revealing how obsessed with the Near East that the Victorian occultists were. Um, part absurdity, part pantomime. The Masons were a huge structural part of society at the time. And like I said, you can trace their... You can... If you move backwards towards the Rosicrucians in the 16th century, you can see how fascinated they all were with, as I said, Egyptology. And don't forget there were explorers of that century opening tombs all across Egypt and uncovering... Um, new and hidden secrets all the time and it was this that fascinated Victorian society and there also then the Jewish Kabbalah mystical system seemed to play an important role and what you find is there's the adoption of many different kinds of symbolism into all of this so this is the edge as I said of western explorers heading out into Egypt and this would seem to be something that they all weave into their occultism. So Crowley joins the Golden Dawn, um, and you could say its days were numbered from the moment he joined, because he certainly was not a benign influence. He was definitely a malign influence. And it's interesting to notice how much he clashed with Yeats. Yeats fascinates me um, because he seems to be such a romantic, such um, he's constantly searching for this form of revelation, this form of beautiful, almost mysticism delivered to him by 
through his um, prism of Celtic appreciation. And he is constantly looking to the women in his life to somehow deliver that revelation, to be the medium. And it strikes me that he never found it, or at least kept searching and kept hoping to find it. And I could, you could almost feel that he was taken advantage of in some places by this obsession with the medium. Whereas you take Crowley, and he certainly was a malign influence. He wanted to push, how can I say, his famous three C's, cocaine, cognac and cunt, certainly were at odds with the holistic nature of somebody like Yeats, if we can use the holistic or white magic element of Yeats. Crowley was the opposite, and they butted heads. In fact, I think Yeats really definitely disliked him. In fact, it seems everyone disliked him. It was Crowley who certainly wanted to push the destructive element and wanted to punt the boat further out into the darkness. Do you punt a boat? I'm not sure. What are those things in Venice? I can't remember. Anyway, you punt them, right, don't you? Crowley is at loggerheads with the rest of the Golden Dawn. And in 1899, he buys House, Bolskin House, which is on the shores of Loch Ness, which is such an odd place. But he buys this on the shores of Loch Ness to perform the hymn to a Bremlin, um, a magical ceremony, a ritual that, date back, that dates back to the Magi, or, well, magician, magus. Magus means magician. To the mage, a bremlin of worms, um, from the year 1458 as he journeyed through Egypt. Again, the obsession with Egyptology. Um, so this magical ceremony, Crowley picks the house because he thinks it's the perfect geographical setting. It's, it's, it's secluded. There's no neighbours to intrude. It has a north-facing um, pagoda or whatever you want to call it like this. And he has a mixture of people, acolytes and religious devotees. He seems to have this enigmatic, magnetic personality that draws people to him. And he treats them terribly, by and large. But they still seem to stick with them. And he is... This, the cleansing process to reach the hymn to a Bremlin seems to take six months. And when the other members, again, like I said, I might be here and there with the timeline. Just bear with me as I try and dredge this up from the grey matter. The rest of the Golden Dawn are not impressed that this is the ritual that he's trying to undertake as they hear back through in dispatches. And... The most famous occultist and the head of the Golden Dawn at the time, Mathers McGregor, basically summons him to Paris before he's finished the ritual, which the ritual should take something like 18 months. I think, in truth, Crowley was, um, Crowley was disappointed at not getting the results and seemed to be satisfying his sexual urges with his own form of sex magic ritual basically orgies in the evening we could call it that um, so he summons Mathers summons him to Paris and to consult with him by the way that house Bolskin house that's the house that Jimmy Page bought in the 1970s he said was haunted by the spirit of Crowley and all that kind of thing 
So Crowley goes to visit Mathers in Paris. Um, and I guess what's happening is that Crowley is trying to take over. He's trying to impress upon Mathers that his form of revelation, his he's he's contemplating that the ritual that it's sexual energy that is the door to revelation mixed with his intake of drugs I guess as well and it's his contemporaries that are fearful of his methodology and they also accuse him of leaving open a portal to hell with the ritual that he was attempting to do anyway what am I talking about okay focus Mathers seemed to relent to Crowley's insistence on this new and darker methodology. So Crowley returns to the Golden Dawn and in petulance just changes the locks on their buildings and more or less this is the beginning of the end of the Golden Dawn. And it's hard to really put into words how the next, I mean if you were to look, if you were to try and put into context the next 20 years of Crowley's life, it would almost seem unbelievable. So I'll start with what I have in my hands, which is Liber Alva Ligus, the book of the law, where the famous phrase, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law, comes from. Um, and it's a very strange piece of work. The second half of it is Crowley's handwriting. So you only really get 50 pages. The facsimile of the original handwritten script of Liber Al. The comment is, Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. The study of this book is forbidden. It is wise to destroy this copy after the first reading. Whosoever disregards this does so at his own risk and peril. These are most dire. Those who discuss the contents of this book are to be shunned by all as centres of pestilence. All questions of the law are to be decided only by appeal to my writings, each for himself. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Love is the law. Love under will. And in those last four lines is the principle of Thelema. This is the magical structure and theory that Crowley developed in the early 20th century. We're talking 1904, 1905. Um, that is the Thelemic principle. And of course, he recognized that Thelema from Behemoth albums. Um, from Emperor, Emperor, I think so. From lots, from too many bands to mention, you will you will see the lifting of phrases of magical rituals. Um, so, where does the Book of the Law come from? Now it starts to get really interesting and really strange. So Crowley's first wife, Rose Edith Kelly, seems to have been his toxic twin. Um, well able for the opium, well able for the cocaine and the cognac and the other C word, it would seem. And they are married and decide to more or less just take a world tour. They swan around Cairo in a, a carriage pulled by young men cleaning you know, the streets in front of them. Um, they declare themselves otherworldly names, prince of this, princess of that. Um, and she seems to match him toe for toe in the session, as we say over here, um, imbibing opium and hashish, hashish performing rituals. 
for days on end. So in the middle of this, let's call it what it is, in the middle of this massive bender, this massive drug session, by massive bender, I mean, in Ireland we call, uh, you know, if you go on the, the session, you go on the booze for the whole weekend or whatever you're doing, that's, that's like a huge bender. Anyway, what am I talking about? So they're performing rituals, they're drugging, they're drinking, and after a couple of weeks of this, she tells Crowley that she has a message from the god Horus. He doesn't believe her because he doesn't believe that she knows who Horus is. So they go to the museum in Cairo and she points straight to the image of Horus and says, this is who's trying to reach me. And the number of the exhibit is 666, which Crowley sees as a divine um, providence. So, what happens then is that the Crowley comes in contact with his guardian angel demon called Iwas through the medium of Rose. And Iwas dictates to him over three days the book that I have in my hand, the book of the law. Um, and this is the, as I said, the principle of Thelemic magic or the principle of the Thelemic you know, intellectual estate, if you want to call it like that, something like this. And this never leaves Crowley. He stays with this until he dies, the principle of Thelema. Um, so he has this, he has this. Don't forget, he's starting to write books. He's, he's writing poetry. He's, uh, there's so many insane things happening. Um, but we have the book of the law. And this is, as I said, one of the things that defines many of these occultists at the time. And as I said, Yeats being the prime example to me is their willingness to see women as the key to mediumistic revelation. Um, so through Rose, Crowley comes to meet, as I said, this entity called Iwas. And 100 years later, I buy the book in Tower Records. This is the abomination of desolation. They continue their world tour. They decamp to Asia. He attempts the Enochian ritual to the god Koranzan in Algeria. Koranzan, widely considered the, the most despicable of all demons. His travel bio seems so absurd that it's hard to even grasp. He is a mountaineer, climbs a mountain, leaves his own team on the side of a mountain, it would seem, to die. Um, his callousness and disregard for the people that gravitate towards him constantly astound me and that people just constantly seem to flock to be in his aura, to be in his to be in his space, to be around him, and yet he just constantly seems to treat them awfully. I guess that's what you call charisma. Goetia, the bornless one. You've probably heard that name as well. And yet like I said, the thing that fascinates me is that all of his photos and images from this time I, I barely look like the same person. So have a flick through your black metal records and see how many names you might recognize or names of demons or maybe there's a Moyan drawing, whether it's Mystifier or Rotting Christ, and you begin to realize, okay, the shadow of Alice Crowley hangs the shadow doesn't hang. A shadow is cast over the scene. And by 1905, Crowley is 
the self-proclaimed wickedest man on earth, traveling the world, performing rituals, scandalizing society. And it's hard to know how much of it was just charlatanism, was in just an enigmatic snake oil salesman. And it's at this time he returns to the UK to start to propagate this thelemic ideal. But what is evident is he certainly seems to drive people mad who meet him. Um, he has a child with Rose. The child dies at the age of two. He seems to blame her for this, although how the child dies is uh, unusual and difficult to find the exact information of. So he divorces in 1909. And then it all starts to get even more crazy, more insane. In his later life, Crowley would, and, other, and some biographers would claim he was a spy, a spy for, the, for British intelligence. Um, and he has, a, he has what seems to be a comedically inexplicable job working for the British Army in World War I. But again, trying to find out what is smoke and what is mirrors is very difficult. Some say it's patently nonsense. nonsense. Either way, what happens then, Crowley, Crowley decamps to the USA to spread his thalemic message. I think maybe also because UK society is just sort of sick of, sick of him as details of his private life start to become more and more tabloid fodder. So, again, like I said, I'm probably going to make a few mistakes in the timeline here because it's very confusing trying to get a hold on where he was and what he was doing. Um, he definitely goes to the USA. He befriends, and it becomes a huge influence on a one L. Ron Hubbard, who of course started Scientology. And what Hubbard takes from Crowley is the idea of a revealed scripture that you gain access to secrets as you progress. Very much a magical structure inherited from Crowleyan ritual that the further you progress, the more is revealed. Um, he also seems he also seems to have taken on board or to, to have moved in certain circles in L.A. society to have taken on board an early, uh, I suppose, a physicist, is he? Jack Parsons. He certainly works on jet propulsion theory, um, who reportedly was a lover to Marilyn Monroe, who was connected to John F. Kennedy in time. It, it, again, it sounds all very, very unbelievable. So what does Thelema mean? Thelema means will in Greek, is the English translation. And it seems to very much exemplify Crowley's belief that Egyptology held some sort of magical key for the 20th century. So where are we with Crowley? He's in the USA. He's even writing for Vanity Fair, if you can believe that. His diaries document his continuing experiment with sex magic, his use of masturbation, female prostitutes, male clients of a Turkish bathhouse, very much like Byron again there. And there, all of these are documented in his diaries. If you want to try and find Diary of a Drug Fiend, it's worth a find to take a little peer into the manic portal of Crowley's life. He writes for a pro-German propagandist magazine in the United States called The Fatherland. But yet, in time, he decides or is said to have been a spy working to infiltrate German intelligence or German sympathizers in the USA at the time. 
was he actually a double agent or just a manipulative shyster? It's so difficult to actually tell. He organizes a publicity stunt in front of the Eiffel, in front of not the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty, declaring Irish independence. A lot of the times it just seems like he's taken the piss, taken the piss out of people and somehow maneuvers himself into these crazy situations. To Megatherion, you know that name, right? Well, Crowley retreats to Lake Pascany, owned by an Evangeline Adams. I mean, the names just become staggering. But here he is under the influence of a lot of drugs and he undertook a ritual which he proclaimed himself Master Therion and wrote several short stories based on the Golden Bough, which, of course, you've heard from Atlantean Codex, I guess. The Gospel According to Bernard Shaw. Yeah, I mean... The names and the connections and the dots connected, of course, 100 years later, it's some of it is maybe wishful or wishful thinking to connect all these dots. But there's no doubt the man seemed to have lived a different life almost every decade. So in the end, he works his way through many, many scarlet women. He works his way through elements of U.S. society, influencing people. Was he a spy? Was he not a spy? Infiltrating German support for the war. It's all very strange. And he ends up in Greenwich Village for a brief while. So the English, there's an English tabloid paper called John Bull at the time. And they they go after Crowley. They declare him a traitor and this and that and the other. And so the UK seems like an unwelcome place for Crowley at the end of this end of the decade. So he buys an abbey or a house in Kefalu in Sicily, which becomes the infamous Thelema Abbey. And he moves there in 1920, 1921, with an assortment of acolytes, devotees and ingrates. And stories abound of nightly orgies, naked children running around in abandoned stories of animal sacrifice and excrement. Um, scandalized the island and eventually Mussolini sends the strong arm of the law to expel him from Italy and to expel him from the island. And all of this happens in a two or three year period. He moves, he has this commune with a whole bunch of odd socialites and acolytes. There's even film stars come and they're dressing up in robes, performing rituals to the sun god Raj during the day performing the Gnostic mass and then in the evening partaking in Crowley's sex magic uh, rituals. He's purporting that the Book of the Law is now almost like a Bible and he's offering the Abbey. What he wants is the Abbey is to be seen as a libertine education sect where people will send their children to be educated by him. It's it's insane. And that by this time, he's his heroin addiction is is full blown. And his cocaine addiction has begun to erode his nasal cavity. Um, and the Abbey begins to scandalize the people in the local area. And like I said, eventually Mussolini on the grounds, uh, a young Thelemite called Raoul Loveday moves to the Abbey with his wife and he dies of a blood disease, blood infection. Um, he claims it was from being made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat. Uh, 
Um, whereas other Lovecraftian, Lovecraftian, Crowleyan biographers claim that it was that he drank water from a poisoned spring. Anyway, the wickedest man in the world and the man we'd like to hang as John Bull proclaim him. Crowley seems, Crowley is now more or less public enemy number one in the in, in the UK. The scandal from the Abbey reaches the, U, the UK press and the tabloids love it. Um, they love it. And it's not before long, not long before he served a deportation notice to, for him to leave. The Abbey is closed and the Abbey is still there. You can go and visit it and you can see um, Kenneth Anger went there and uncovered some of the paintings which local people had painted over and it is still there. You can go and visit it. Needless to say, the next 10 years or so, again, reveal different lives to Crowley. He seems to be more or less destitute. His health is starting to catch up with him. He goes for surgery on his nose to try and repair his nose cavity, which is destroyed from cocaine. He seems to take on an endless list of wealthy acolytes who he seems to skirt on their, um, ride in on their coattails, so to speak. Um, he meets with people like Aldous Huxley and Alfred Adler. He even took in the famous communist Gerald Hamilton in 1932 as a lodger. He seems to he seems to be everywhere, but he also seems to be very destitute. And it this, it's at this time he takes a court case against um, like against a tabloid who'd been calling him the wickedest man in the world. And he takes this very expensive court case and loses. And this throws him into virtual absolute bankruptcy he ends up literally living um a destitute as a down and out um in a really really odd moment he becomes fascinated with nazism and he thinks that hitler might somehow convert to thelema but but the nazis abolish the ordo templo orientis and they imprisoned the leader um who fled to the u.s um, and who then went on to criticize Hitler, calling him a black magician. It, it, like I said, it, just even trying to get my head around all of this, it begins to spiral out of control. So what happens then is that he appears to have met people like Dennis Wheatley, Roald Dahl, Ian Fleming and Maxwell Knight. Again, I don't want to get bogged down by just keep mentioning names, but it's very hard to keep a handle on what was happening at this time. He's in the UK. He's suffering very badly from asthma. And seems to, um, he's still writing books. The Book of Thoth comes out in this period, for example. Um, of course, you know the name Thoth. And he seems to take up with whoever seems to give him attention. We could say something like that. Anyway, he lives till 72 and he dies in Brighton in December 1947. And at his funeral, they read excerpts from the Gnostic Mass, the Book of the Law, and Hymn to Pan. Um, the funeral itself even generated controversy, and he was labelled a black mass by the tabloids. And um, he ended the last 10 years of his life more or less destitute, teaching magic for rent, teaching magic to whoever would flock to him 
in whatever means he could. He was still reasonably prolific with the writing, or at least reasonably productive. But it's clear that his lifestyle caught up with him. But right to the end, he still attempted to preach the Thelemic magic principle. So where does that leave us? Maybe I've not done justice to the legacy of Alistair Crowley. And I'm, the last 10 years, the last 15 years of his life, as I said, was spent going from pillar to post. I think trying to sort of scratch a living, but still write and influence people. But realistically, it is the previous 20 years that we will probably remember him most for his legacy. But what is his legacy? What is the legacy of this entire movement? I think that you can very clearly um, make a connection between the writings of Crowley and the 1960s counterculture. And not just among musicians like Bowie and Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who adopted some of his philosophies, his mantras, his sayings, and even his aesthetics. It wasn't only that. It was the idea of libertinism, of outright individualism, which Crowley seemed to embody, that was so influential to people in those times. He was outspoken about um, being pro, I suppose now what would be called gay rights. He was openly bisexual. He was open with his drug use. He was a libertine in the true sense of the word, almost like Desaad or something like this. And I think that in the individualistic age that the post-Second World War West moved into, he was almost like a poster boy for free will. And for that, maybe we should remember him the most. And for sure, something as nihilistic and as fractious and reckless as what black metal pertained to be at its inception, someone like Crowley was almost like a perfect figurehead. Crowley was sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's more or less what he was of his age. He was an absolute libertine. He was an obsessive, a religious de devotee to decadence and indulgence. Life, the great indulgence. Death, the great abstinence. Anyway, Agitators Anonymous, this is Alan Averill. I hope it illuminated a few things. To Megatherion, we thank you, Alistair. All right, over and out. Man is so infinitely small in all these stars, determinate. Maker and the molder of them all, man is so infinitely great. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.